Hello, I'm Alec Wilkinson. You're listening to Sailing Uncovered, in which we look at one of the toughest sailing records on the planet. In fact, the universe. Well, the galaxy anyway. Any boat, any time, and hardly any rules. Sounds awesome, huh? But get this. Except for a short period in the early 90s, French skippers had always held the record. Maybe that's why the trophy is named after the famous French writer Jules Verne. Back in the 1800s, he sent his hero Phileas Fogg around the world in 80 days, as we all know. And he used all sorts of transport, of course, hot air balloons, trains, steamers. But could modern man sail around the world in under 80 days? Well, the answer came in 1993 when French skipper Bruno Perron did it in 79 days and became the first winner of the Jules Verne trophy. Now, it's this time of year, autumn in the Northern Hemisphere, that skippers line up to start their attempts at circumnavigation. Amongst them, the skippers of the Vendée Globe and anyone attempting the Jules Verne record as well, which is the limbo that our guest is in right now. He's waiting for the right weather patterns that will allow him and his Sedebo team to set off on their huge multi-hull. Sam Goodchild, thanks for joining us. Let's start by hearing about the team. Tell us about them. Yep, so we're preparing for the, the Jules Verne Trophy, um, which is round the world non-stop, any boat, any time, um, hardly any rules, so no ice skates, nothing. Um, we're going to leave this winter. We basically wait for the best weather window um, to go down the Atlantic as fast as you can, and for the rest of it, we have to cross our fingers a bit weather-wise. Um, the Bertamon is called Sedebo. It was put. It was launched eighteen months ago in spring two thousand nineteen, and um, it's one of the new foiling generation boats. So it's hundred foot or thirty three meters. Um, it's got um, foils basically everywhere. It's got foils on both floats, and then a, a T on the dagger board, which is new this year, and then um, T's on the f- on the three rudders as well. So basically, the whole thing came out of the water which compared to the boat which holds the record today, which is um, Francis Joyon's IDEX Sport, um, means in under 20 knots we've got a huge performance advantage, which is which is what we hope is going to make the difference. And then in the Southern Ocean we can go at least as quick as those guys, So, um, and even quicker if the sea state isn't too bad. Um, the team itself is led by Tom Coville, who's been sponsored by Sedebo f- for over 20 years now, I think. Um, and there's eight of us on board. Um, he he's chosen a team um, which is we're a, a full of all rounders really, who are all fairly capable of doing everything. Um, so we've got on board. We've got a, a obviously the skipper Thomas. We've got a boat captain Francois, a media man Martin, and then the five the five others of us are all all rounders. So um, um, we can drive, we can trim. The idea is we rotate every hour. We've got a new person on deck, so there's never a full change of crew on deck, and everyone's able to keep the boat going fast and follow what's going on with the weather. While Tomer keeps keeps on top of well, obviously his skipper role as well as navigation, because the navigator on this record attempt is going to be on land and in communication with the boat permanently. Now you've touched on the boat already, but tell us a bit more about these huge trimarans because. I don't know, they really capture the imagination, don't they? In fact, we've got an awesome video of them 
in action on our YouTube channel. And that short clip of them powering through high seas in the Atlantic has got a phenomenal number of views. So uh, people love them. They're, they're just awesome machines. So yeah, the boats are, it's called an old team. It's part of the old team class. Um, so it's 25 meters wide and 32 meters or 33 meters long. Um, so 100 foot. They're basically, it's this new generation of boats. There's three of us um, sailing at the moment. So there's Massif, um, of Francois Gaba, which is about probably about to change its name, Shitana, um, Edmund the Rothschild, and then us, Sodebo. Um, and we're the three old teams which are fully foiling um, boats now. So it's, it's a full new technology of boats. It's kind of a whole new way of sailing, and it's super interesting to be involved with and learn how to make a 100-foot boat foil offshore through waves and when can you fully foil and go on flat water and when and when do you have to take it a bit easy through waves and and just all the elements of going around foiling because it's like a normal boat with a whole new dimension which is even more important than the sails and the rig um so it's 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 incredible i don't know there's not really many other ways to say it and the fact that we we've almost hit 50 knots already um on an offshore boat i think we did 48 or 49 um and the big thing is we can in 15 knots of wind we're easily going two and a half times wind speed so um it's it's um it's a pretty impressive thing to be involved in and what about the revolutionary cockpit that's been put in front of the mast so the idea of having the cockpit in front of the mask in the front of the mast is center of gravity and aerodynamics so center of gravity is we're moving this center of gravity of the boat because the cockpit is um, all the structure for the winches, for the electronics, for everything you use. Um, so that's rather than being aft, that's on top of the foils. Um, the central hull is now really skinny at the back and wider at, over the foils, so centre gravity further forward again. And then all the crew weight, so whether that's the eight sailors or the food we're eating or the spares we're having, they're all in the same place. So we've really moved the centre of gravity forward. And then in terms of aero, we've, we're able to drop the boom down, so the boom's now at deck level. Um, and so we have an end plate effect on the on the back of the hull um, and it means we've got a shorter mast than the others but still have the same sail area so that's the real difference and the reason it was this choice that choice was made um, and for us on board it obviously is a bit different to trim sails from looking at a mainsail from the front of the mast and looking at a jib from beneath it rather than behind it um, but it's something we kind of been working and adapting ourselves to and using lots of marks so you can go look out the back of the boat and then come look at where your mark is and I mean, it's kind of a general theme in sailing at the moment as we all realise that, or sailing as a whole realises that protection equals speed because you're comfortable for longer, especially offshore. It's what everyone's getting used to, and especially us. So performance-wise, it's better. It gives us a bit more control on the on the longitudinal um, stability of the boat um, because the centre of gravity is in the same place. On the, the small downside which we have is it's a bit less comfortable being so far forward in the boat when you start jumping off waves, so... To get around that, we've moved the bunks further aft inside the main hull. They're further aft, so um, so when you're on off watch, you've got a bit a bit of a better chance of sleeping. But I mean, it's at all these new falling boats. To be honest, they've got a limit. The physical limit of the human sailor is comes in pretty quickly. Even on Spindrift a few years ago, we we'd have to slow down, head into waves just because we couldn't handle it anymore. And that's on a boat which is ten meters longer and and I don't know how many tons heavier five five ten tons heavier. So um. It, it maybe just brings that human limit a bit closer, but then on the other side, the T-board on the dagger board 
um, helps stable things out a bit. So The YouTube video I mentioned earlier is uh, from the Brest Atlantique race, which saw quite a few problems with the foils. They are, of course, what power you through and over the water, but they also make the boat really vulnerable, don't they? Yeah, it is. The, the big risk with these these new foiling multi-hulls is the, the foils and the T-boards and everything you've got. They're, they're bigger, they've got more leverage on them with the big L's on them, so when you hit something, there's more more chance you do more damage compared to a short stubby foil of the old, comparatively on the older old teams. So that's big, definitely our biggest worry is hitting something. Um, we've got a bunch of systems in place to try and avoid hitting things, and then when we do hit them, try and avoid damaging them. But for sure, when you're going 40 nuts with a boat, which is which is that big and that heavy, there's there's not a lot you can do compared to a lump of wood or a container or or something solid. So. And, but on the other side of these boats, uh, the record, the average speed for the record is 26 knots. Um, and these boats are more than capable of doing 30 to 40 knots with no foils whatsoever. Um, and with three rudders, we've got some, we've got a bit of margin. Um, and with the T rudders, we're not too dangerous tucking the bows in because that holds the stern down. So uh, saying that we're expecting to break something is maybe a bit exaggerated, but we wouldn't be surprised if it happened and we've got everything we We've done everything we can to try and make sure that it's not going to end the record. Um, and obviously the main thing is to try and avoid hitting anything we can. It's a crew of eight chosen from a much bigger squad. How was the selection made? Uh, so the selection, it, it was it was over a long period, really. So we've been, a lot of us have been sailing with the boat since it was launched. And with these big projects um, that spend a lot of time in the shed, you can't really have a full team of sailors. So... Tom has had a group of sailors really over the last year and a half which come sailing um, as and when different people are available and then the race last year, the big race last year was double-handed and then um, this year is broken up with COVID so it's kind of an advantage to have a group of sailors to be able to tap into um, as and when people are available um, and I was a bit busy this summer with the Figaro so I was fortunate to keep my spot on board but fortunately he um, he understood he's already done the Figaro and he did everything he could to help me do a good Figaro and keep me keep me in the loop in the in the old team, so that now now the figure is over, I'm hundred percent with them and not for, not too far left behind. Um, so we're we've got one spare and then we've got two two people in the in the weather weather routing house at, on land who could potentially be spares as well. One of which is Jean Luc, who's done more miles on this boat than anyone but Tomer, I think. So it's a pretty strong team, and I'm pretty excited to be in the last eight. Just it's Tomer that's picked that team based on um, how we all work together because it's obviously 40 days on a boat all together one of the most important elements is you all get along for the whole time because it's a long way around and if you if it starts working against each other then it's not going to go very far and now you're on standby so what does that waiting involve so standby basically means the boat is ready um, ready to go um, and we're ready our bags are packed and we're looking at weather. On weather-wise, the basically all we can look at is the first. Well, the first five days we've got a pretty good idea. So the first five days is to the equator. Um, the second five days we've got an idea as to what the South Atlantic is going to look like. So basically, is the high or is it going to be north and east or south and west? So north and east is great because you go straight. You cut the corner and you go straight to to Cape of Good Hope. Um, and south and west is bad because it means you have to go a long way round to stay in the wind, and you're not going to go up around the top of it. So. That's really what we're looking at to leave. Um, and we don't really go sailing in standby unless there's something specific to check because um, we don't really want to break anything and then miss a weather window because we've 
we've been out training, so all the training's done, really. So, yeah, that's standby, and we're on standby to the 15th of January. Presumably the weather patterns you describe are most likely to happen in the Northern Hemisphere autumn? Um, basically, this time of year is best around the world races because it's the Southern Hemisphere summer. Um, to go around the world, we basically need to go as far south as we can, um, and going down there in the in the Southern Hemisphere winter would be rough, cold, dark, and dangerous. Um, so it's basically the reason for leaving now is the Southern Hemisphere summer because further south you go, the less distance you go. So the, it's the easiest way to gain time on the record rather than going faster north. Um, so that's that's now. And yeah, like I was saying, just the weather, the weather, what decides whether we leave is really number one is getting to the Atlantic quickly. So you leave with a northwesterly um, and you have strong trades down down the Portuguese coast and then to the equator so that's that's really number one and then south atlantic and after that you really have to cross your fingers weather wise and and make sure you're going fast all the time okay so tell us about life on board that constant noise and physical pummeling that you get must be terrible yeah so life on board is is definitely one of the most important elements which is why boats nowadays in mockers and all teams are getting cockpits more and more covered i think every refit of the last three years on offshore boats included having a bigger cockpit roof um us included um and so yeah it's really if you can stay dry and comfortable you're going to have more energy for longer and be able to keep trimming your sails longer and keep driving longer and keep on top of important decisions longer so um one of our big our biggest problem on board to be honest more than anything else is humidity especially when you get down in the southern hemisphere where um, on the in this well southern ocean rather um, where the the conditions are are cold and there isn't much chance to dry out so um, we've put a lot of effort into ventilation in the boat which will stop condensation and also we've installed the heater um, which helps bring in a bit of hot air which evaporates the condensation and, and makes everything better because when we're in the southern ocean for three weeks and in the Vendée Globe it's even longer it's probably six weeks um, and really if if you can't find a way of having sustainable life on board in those conditions, it's only going to deteriorate around the world. Um, and I said a bit earlier as well with the the bunks, we've put them toward, further towards the back of the boat, which is where the boat moves a bit less, um, especially going over waves. Um, and that was a comfort decision as well um, because uh, you have to get a decent off watch to have a good on watch. So um, it is, it is difficult life on board, but um I mean, we're there to do a job. Um, there's eight of us on board and it's all the same story. So we do what you want and it isn't unheard of to slow the boat down in conditions not only to save the boat and the platform, but to save the sailors. And, and how do you schedule your days? The skipper and media man are off watch, so they run their own programme. Um, um, depending on what needs to be done, I guess the media man will take less photos at night and, and Tom will be around when there's important decisions to make and manoeuvres to be done and sail choices and sail changes. And then there's six, there's six others of us on a rotating system where we spend two hours on watch, one hour on standby, two hours off watch, one hour on standby. So that means that we've at all times we've got two people on deck, two people on standby and two people off watch, which means the people on standby can be brought in to sell the boat if it's a bit full on or they can get some extra rest if it's fairly quiet um, or get some food in or, or or fix things if there's something broken or do check so the, the aim of that system is that you've never got the whole the whole on watch crew changing at one time um, so you've always got someone that's been there for an hour 
and understanding what's happening, what the history is, whether the wind's building, dropping. Obviously, it's a conversation as well, but it's never quite the same as being there yourself. And because all six of us are all fairly good all-rounders, it's, um, the idea is it's a fairly seamless change the whole time rather than, okay, uh, have a debrief at the end of your watch to brief the next watch and then everyone goes to bed. That's how our days are scheduled um, on a normal time and then we've always got to keep on board, on top of checks and and breakages and repairs so everyone's got their, their part of the boat they look after, keep an eye on, know what the spares are on board, keep in contact with the shore crew who are specialised in that area and make sure that we're keeping on top of things to avoid anything that could slow us down or stop the record. What about the mental side of things? It's it's a hot topic, isn't it? Mental health. And you've talked a lot, and it's interesting that you've talked a lot about helping alleviate the physical difficulties. But do you guys work with psychologists? Um, on the mental side of things, we don't work with a specific psychologists, no. But I think the biggest element of that is Tomer and his crew selection, and not just the eight of us that are on board, but even the rest of the pool of sailors is is been really important to find a group of guys that work well together. So we've got the, the knowledge and the confidence to be able to make the boat go, but not not to start causing problems between us. And it is, he's done a really good job, to be honest. It's one of the most friendly teams I've sailed on um, in terms of just everyone getting on, everyone being on the same page as the same goal with the same objectives. So far, we haven't needed a psychologist. But, um, I'll let you know after 40 days at sea if, if we regret that choice. <laughs> Talking of psychology, I find it really interesting that you're the only non-Frenchman on the crew as well. Because you've been adopted by the French, I know, but moving to France is something every sailor will have to do eventually if they want to make it big in offshore sailing, or at least at the, at the moment. Now, obviously, there are a few exceptions. But on the whole, uh, it doesn't matter if you're American, a, a Kiwi, or if you're British, if you want to succeed in offshore in these sorts of record attempts in these really tough Vendée Globe type races you have to compete in France so how difficult is it to break through onto the French sea I don't know if it's difficult it's not it's not short I moved here the first time 10 years ago and I've been here full-time for five years now five or six years and for sure I mean it's a life choice more than a more than a career choice like I've I've I live here now, I've got a family here now, I've got a house here now, so it is, it is where I live. Um, but to be honest, it's not. It's, I, t- I came up young, so I couldn't expect to turn up and be invited on the big boats and the big projects straight away, especially not speaking the language. Um, so to be honest, I've been accepted fairly well, even the, the famous Paula Foray training centre where everyone says, if you're not from Finisterre, then you're not invited. To be honest, they've even, they helped me loads when I first came in. I came sailing with them and when I was 19, and every time I come back, they come say hi to me and come help me out and give me any tips I need any. So to be honest, I've been fairly welcomed in. Um, and an Englishman who makes a, an effort to speak French is, is always going to get a few extra brownie points. So um, that helps me. Um, I mean, it, it could be interesting how the sailing world goes because I think there's quite a few changes that will have quite a big effect um, over the long term. Um, one of the most important ones in France actually is the the Tour de France à which is no longer offshore, it's now gone inshore in small trimarans, the DM24s, which is great for, for media, or not media, but for images, I guess. But um, to be honest, a lot of the top French sailors today, if you look at all the Vendée Globe winners of recent years, Figaro winners, etc., they've come through the Tour de France and they've learned how to sail, being able to get on a fully crewed boat and go sail around the Brittany rocks and, and tides with legends of the sport. 
and of that's really been the school of offshore sailing in France. And five years ago, it's or five ten years ago, it stopped um, and went inshore. Um, so that doesn't exist anymore. And I think that's that will have a knock on effect that could be quite important over the years. And then the other flip side of that is now the Amokas have been brought in as the new Volvo Ocean Race boat or Ocean Race boat. Um, that will internationalise the Amoka class as well. So I think um, quite a few things could change where it could become not 100% French-based and a bit more international. It's obviously not going to happen overnight, but it is. Um, there are elements which I think could go into making it more international if the Amokas can, can get a foothold in the, in the world outside of France. Um, I think there's a lot of lot of good things that can happen to make the, the offshore world more international. That said, I'm happy in France and happy with with the life that's that's come for me come for me here and um, all the offshore sailing I've been doing. Yeah. Now I know there'll be there'll be kids listening to this who who sail and love sailing and and maybe they're wondering which way they should go with their sailing career. What attributes do you need to be successful in offshore sailing? Probably say stubborn. <laughs> Um, I'd say the most important attribute is not giving up like it's it's a long game or it has been for me anyway um, and sometimes you find yourself doing um, work that isn't that interesting and isn't paid and sometimes you find yourself doing amazing work which is paid and everything in between um, so I mean I've been fairly stubborn I guess and just sticking at it and, and there's been highs and lows and um, finding sponsors losing sponsors getting opportunities losing opportunities and it just kind of have to keep going for it and if you keep that one goal in mind and and keep making all your decisions day by day um towards getting to that goal and any time off you have working towards that goal okay so perseverance is is the thing um you've done single-handed and team sailing for which you need perseverance for for both uh, but which of those two do you prefer i prefer the combination the single handed sailing i love because you is everything you have to do the nerve you have to go make the boat go fast you have to rest you have to fix you have to do everything and I like being able to get involved in everything and and having really a, an idea of what's happening everywhere. And then team sailing I love because you get to sail with some awesome people um, and share and really push the boat a lot harder and go faster um, and be more on the edge. And just the, the whole communication with other people, working as a team when it all goes well and sharing lots is um, is pretty pretty interesting as well. And you learn a lot from that. So... I love I kind of I love the the combination um, to be able to this year the Figaro on my own and then the Jules Verne on, with eight people on an all team trimaran. I count myself as really lucky and very fortunate, and um, hopefully I can do more like that. Do you fancy a go at the Olympics when offshore becomes part of it in Paris twenty twenty four? Basically, my aim till today has been to get to the Vendée Globe, and and for sure it'd be interesting to go to the Olympics and aim for getting a medal. Um, but I don't want to get too deviated from my goal so it's something i'll keep an eye on for sure it's interesting i did the figure this year and it's interesting and fun and the paris doing similar could be great but today i mean all my aim and energy and time is is going toward trying to get to the 24th Vendée globe and i'll keep an eye on the olympics for sure i definitely wouldn't say no going to the olympics is something something pretty special so why is the Vendée globe such a holy grail for you because it's the biggest challenge that exists in my sport and probably and arguably outside of my sport as well in all sports um around the world single-handed non-stop um racing uh is uh, for me it's just it's amazing when i first heard about it i didn't understand how it was possible how people did it and 
a lot of people say you're crazy why do you want to do that which just kind of motivates me to want to do it even more so I guess it's just the the challenge and the competition and trying to find the balance of the two in the mix um, and the fact that it's so hard to do and so hard to finish um, just makes it more attractive um, I guess in the same way that people do Ironmans and all-team Ironmans and everything else they do I guess it's the same for me and in um in my sport of sailing mm-hmm. but but how hard is it to put together a Vendée Globe campaign well I've been trying for over 10 years I haven't got there yet so I don't know but I'd say pretty tough <laughs> um it's um it's for sure it's not easy there's a lot of stars that need to align to make it happen be it a sponsor a boat the timing it's every four years um so for sure it's not something easy but it's kind of the attraction of it and I I really like to when I do the Vendée Globe being a con- position to to be on the podium to leave knowing that I've got a chance to be on the podium so my my main aim really has been to get the experience to be in a situation when I get the opportunity to be there so it's pretty hard to build a campaign I'm working on it and probably will be working on it for another years another few years the next opportunity is 2024 and then it's 2028 so I'm trying my best I'll let you know when I get there okay Looking at this year's Vendée Globe, who would you say are the top three to watch and why? I think my favourite for now is probably Charlie Dallin. Um, he's a great sailor who's done big boats and small boats, got to the top of the Figaro circuit, as well as working on Volvo campaigns um, and doing Imoka sailing with as crew as, as crewed with Jan Elias. And he's got a really good experience. He's got an amazing boat. Um, an amazing sponsor and an amazing team. I think he's the one really who's got everything the most lined up. He's obviously a rookie as well. Um, you wouldn't forget Alex Thompson and, and Jeremy Bayou either, who finished on the podium in the last edition. Have both got new boats, have both got experience of almost winning the Vendée Globe. Both very well surrounded by teams as well, teams and sponsors. So for me, those are the top three, Charlie, Alex and Jeremy. And then after that, there's a bunch of people that have got the got certain elements but maybe not a perfect campaign such as Tom Rion who spent a bit of time looking for a sponsor Nico Trussell who only got the boat in the water six months ago um, they've obviously very good sailors with very good boats um, and if the stars line up I think they could definitely give the top three a, a run for their money um, so that's who I've got my eyes on anyway Which stretch of the Vendée Globe which ocean do you think will be the toughest and why? Toughest part of the Vendée Globe for sure is the Southern Ocean the six weeks in the Southern Ocean um broken into the in the part the Indian part and the Pacific part. The Indian Ocean I did a couple of years ago and it's it was for sure fairly brutal. We were very far south um and it was cold and wet and big waves and you're a long way from from anything. So that's really the point you need to you need to be the most careful is in the Southern Ocean. Keeping the boat going fast miles from any anyone or anything apart from your competitors and on your own. So that's definitely the most difficult part of the Vendée Globe and reaching Cape Cape Horn is the moment where um, you get a little bit respite, you think you're almost home, and then you realise that there's three weeks left. <laughs> so it's, you've got another another stretch to go. OK, let's get back to your Jules Verne record attempt. Hopefully you won't have to sit around waiting too long to, to get underway. And I know you're a tough guy, but I want an, un- an honest answer now. What is the one thing you miss most when you're out there on the water and things are getting tough? Um... Probably what you miss most is just the serenity of being at home. Uh, I'm going to go to bed and you walk into your bedroom and you lie down and you're in bed as opposed to having to take off all your weather gear, hang it up, climb down through the obstacle course to get to the bunk and then make sure you put all your boots somewhere so they're not going to get wet or kicked into the bilge. Um, 
then you have to climb into a sleeping bag and then you're, then you're in and finally you start warming up and then you need a wee and you have to realise you have to do all that twice again um, just to go have a wee. Um, you definitely appreciate the the facility of home and being dry and easy. But then once you're on deck, it's all pretty amazing again. So um, I think it's probably what, what I miss most is the easiness of doing your everyday things. Well, hopefully you'll get the odd night of peace and quiet out there. Sam, thank you for the insight and the very best of luck. And hopefully you'll bring that Jules Verne trophy home. Cheers, Alec. Ciao. I'm going to leave you with a a question, a quiz to ponder. See if you know the answer or can find out. I started by saying that except for a short period in the early 1990s, French skippers have always held the Jules Verne record. So the question is, who are the non-French skippers who have held the record? And it was one single attempt and it was a joint attempt by two non-French skippers. Can you guess who it was? And that's it for this episode of Sailing Uncovered. Stay across our socials for updates on Sam's record attempt and the Vendée Globe as well. And check out our YouTube channel as well for some awesome videos. That's it. I'm Alec Wilkinson. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Fair winds.